A randomized controlled trial is often viewed as the golden standard in medical research, particularly as it relates to treatments or interventions. But there may be pitfalls to trusting that approach too much. That's the focus of this episode of Stats and Stories, where we explore the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. Joining me, as always, is regular panelist John Baylor, chair of Miami Statistics Department. Our guest today is Eric Van Swett, an associate professor in the Department of Biomedical Data Sciences of the Leiden University Medical Center, where he's been since 2009. He joined the school wanting to do more applied work in the areas of statistics and data analysis. Van Zwet is the co-author of a significance article exploring the issue of effect exaggeration in randomized controlled trials. Eric, thank you so much for joining us today. You're very welcome. Uh, just to get started, could you explain what a randomized control trial is? Yeah, certainly. So um, this is when somebody thinks of uh, perhaps a new medical treatment um, and they want to try out if it's working. So then the best thing to do is to take a group of uh, patients that are eligible for the treatment, randomly divide them into uh, two groups and give one group a placebo or a control or potentially the, uh, the current best treatment and give the other half the, the new treatment. And then um, you see what the, uh, what the outcome is after a little while of the treatment. And then you can compare the controls to the treated group. And in that way, you can get an estimate of the uh, treatment effect together with a standard error for that estimate, which says something about how accurate the estimate is. You know, one aspect of designing a randomized clinical trial is, is a pl- there's a big planning part of this. And there's a major aspect of that is determining how large a study must be conducted. Could you talk a little bit about some of the decisions that have to be made and what are some of the targets or what's, what are characteristics of kind of a well-designed trial? Yeah, so these uh, sample size uh, calculations, as they're called, is something that I, as a statistician, I get called uh, in to, to do a lot. So then I'll talk to the, uh, to the medical investigators about planning the trial. The idea is that Uh, you have a good chance of finding a statistically significant result at the end of the trial. Um, Because then you'll have proven that the treatment is working. And if the result is not statistically significant, you're really left empty-handed in a sense, because you also didn't prove that the treatment is not working, because perhaps you just didn't have a large enough sample size. So it's all about the sample size needs to be big enough uh, to get a clear result. Now, the sample size calculations are, are often bad news because uh, it often turns out that given the, the variation between, between subjects and given a realistic effect size, you'll need a lot more people than are generally available uh, in the time and the money that are available for a study. So then there's a bit of back and forth between the statistician and the, uh, and the researchers to come up with some sort of compromise. And, um, and that's how the sample size calculations kind of go in practice. There's the theory that you want to have maybe 80% probability of getting a significant result, but then you'll, you'll have to imagine a slightly bigger effect size than maybe is, uh, is plausible, or you'll underestimate the variability just to get a reasonable sample size that you can manage. Your article in Significance is about uh, this idea of effects exaggeration could you talk a bit about how you got interested in this particular issue related to the this kind of research and maybe sort of what led you to write this piece in significance? Yeah, so there's um, a well-known principle, which is called the winner's curse. So if you do a trial and you get a significant result, uh, then that's a combination of maybe having a real effect, maybe having an effective treatment, 
uh, and a bit of luck. Um, so there's a, there's a, uh, it's a combination of the two and you don't really know which one uh, you know, is, is dominant. But there's always luck involved. And that means that um, your effect is a little bit overestimated because, uh, because you've gotten lucky and, um, and that's why your trial is significant. Um, and somehow this winner's curse is well known, um, but it's kind of the elephant in the room. It gets ignored a lot. Uh, we just uh, are happy with our significant result um, because it looks good. Uh, it's convincing, it's big, uh, but we also know it's overestimated. And then on top of that, I know that if a trial has very low statistical power, like we talked about earlier, because maybe the effect was really overestimated and the power really wasn't 80%, if the power is lower, you must have had a lot of luck to get the significant result, which means that this winner's curve is very severe. So there's a combination. It's, uh, it's like a perfect storm. Significant trials are lucky trials. And underpowered significant trials are very lucky trials and are hugely overestimated. Yeah, I, I thought that was really interesting that you, you then you saw this and then you decided to try to investigate this systematically. And part of your systematic investigation included kind of use of the, the Cochrane database of, of systemic reviews. Could you talk a little bit about the kinds of data that you were obtaining from this, this database? And, and how did that kind of start building this, this structure for really exploring the question of exaggerated effects? Yeah, so... Um the Cochrane database is a wonderful resource. Um, it's, um, it's a collection of uh, results from, uh, from clinical trials, uh, tens of thousands of them, and they're gathered by dedicated people who really try to, to even find trials that are not published. So, you know, there, there'll, there'll be some bias in there, and of course, successful trials have a larger, have a bigger chance of being published. The Cochrane database is really the best we have. So it's really a record of clinical trials, tens of thousands of them that have been conducted in the last decades. So it's, it's really wonderful. Um, you can, uh, it's, it's public. You can go online and investigate a particular treatment if you're interested in that. A couple of years ago, I met a then PC student, who, uh, Simon Schwab uh, in Zurich, who happened to have uh, um, collected all these data. Systematically, he collected them all. And you can actually also uh, apply for that with Cochrane and, and get all these data. And now you can go one level up and not just look at all the trials about a particular treatment, which is called a meta-analysis, but you can do a meta-meta-analysis where you look at all the, all the trials in the whole database and really some, say something about how clinical research is done in practice. So now we have a bird's eye view of how the sausage is made. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's always a scary prospect to, to see how the sausage is made, though. You know, so yes. uh, yeah, one aspect of, of, of looking through your paper, I mean, I, I was struck by a number of, of aspects of it. One was when, when you were talking about the, the review of this database and, and these tens of thousands of, of RCTs, these randomized clinical trials that you looked at, you, you have this statement about, you know, nine, nine out of 10 of these trials have power less than their targeted 80%. And and then the median actual power was 13% of these studies. I, that was horrifying to read. <laughs> so can, can you talk a little bit about, you know, how did you, you go through and, and do this kind of evaluation of each of these trials to come up with these types of estimates? Yeah, so power is, uh, is a complicated concept and it means different things. Same word means different things. The one way to do a power or a sample size calculation is to imagine what the smallest effect is that you wouldn't want to miss. Uh, so you're saying, okay, well, uh, this, this, uh, this new treatment would only be interesting for patients if the effect is at least this large. 
and then you design a trial to be able to pick up on an effect that's this large. Now often effects are not actually that, that large and so maybe the, uh, the, the trial really was designed to have 80% power, so 80% probability of a significant result if there is a really interesting effect, but the effect just happens to not be there. Medical research is really hard. Um, so therefore it's to be expected that power against the actual effect that's really there is lower than that. And on top of that, like I explained earlier, there's this, this compromising because trials often really will require more people than are easily available and people run out of money and out of time. So trials are also, there's always a pressure to make trials a little bit smaller than, than is maybe wise. So on the one hand, the fact that this, this power against the true effect is lower than the power against the effect that you would like to see or that would be interesting is, is all in the game. And on top of that, there's the, uh, the limited availability of, uh, of, of subjects and of time and of money. And that leads to the fact that trials tend to be underpowered for the actual effect. So while they're even maybe correctly powered for the effect that's interesting, they're underpowered for the effect that's actually there. And it's interesting that we can estimate this. We can estimate this power distribution because we never know the true effect. Of course, we only get an estimate of the true effect. Um, in any particular trial, we don't know the true effect, but because we have these tens of thousands of trials, we can do some statistical trickery and, uh, and, and get this distribution of the power against the true effects, even though we can never observe them. So for someone who's not a statistician, hearing about the discussion of power is going to be maybe slightly confusing in, how, in, in, how, in trying to understand why this matters. So why, what did you find in your paper and why does it matter for someone who maybe is not in this field of stats and is going to care as much as about the methods and the, and the power? What is the takeaway for our producer, Charles, or, or perhaps even myself? <laughs> okay, so the, the power is the probability... The power against the real effect is the real probability that your trial is going to be significant, given the number of patients that you have and given the actual ef effect of your treatment. Um, if that power is low, that means you have a low probability of reaching significance. But of course, even if the probability of reaching significance is only 20%, you still have a one in five chance of getting a significant result. So that happens a lot because there are many, many trials, and even these underpowered trials lead to significant results that make it into the literature, and people get excited about that. The problem is that if a trial with low power reaches significance, it's very lucky. It's, you know, it's one out of five of the lucky ones, and that means that the effect is overestimated. Uh, because you got so lucky that it, even though the probability that it would reach significance was low, it still made the bar. So, so the fact that, that lots of trials are being done with low power is in itself not such a big problem. The problem is that when you see the significant ones that make the headlines, you're looking at a very, very selected group. And because of this selection and because of the fact that they got lucky, these effects are overestimated. And that's bad because now these treatments look much better than they are. If you try to do a replication study, you'll find probably a much lower effect than you, than you thought you would find because next time around you won't be as lucky. Um, if, you make, if you want to do a new, new study and you want to calculate the sample size on the basis of your old study that got lucky, that had this overestimated effect size, you'll design a new study that again has too low power. So it's sort of this low power leads to all sorts of problems downstream. You're listening to Stats and Stories, and today we're talking with Eric Van Zwet of Leiden University. You mentioned news media coverage before I did the break, and so I do wonder, 
I mean, as I'm hearing you talk about this and thinking about, you know, people like, you know, medical decisions maybe being made based off of what appear in some of these studies sometimes. But I do wonder about what your thoughts are on the way that news media cover these kinds of, of studies and whether there is something that you could suggest journalists keep in mind when they're trying to decide what research in this area they should cover. Because I do think that journalists have a duty of care to actually report, you know, accurately and carefully, particularly when it comes to things that are related to medical interventions or treatments. I think that with any reporting, you always have to wonder what you're not seeing. Uh, because, you know, you're looking at it for, for, for a reason, maybe because it stands out in, in some way. And that's always a difficulty. So that's, you know, even apart from the statistics and from the clinical trial setting, thinking about what you don't see, I think is always a good idea for, for, for anyone, not even, you know, just also regular people, not just journalists, to think about what you don't see. But this is very hard. So the, the research that we've done is important because it's, it shows all the trials that are being done. We look at all the trials that are being done, not just the significant ones. And that allows us to incorporate what we don't see into uh, our interpretation of what we do see. Um, so it means that if we do see a significant trial, we, we, we realize that it's, it's gotten lucky, it's been selected, and we don't see maybe the other trials that didn't reach significance. They're in the Cochrane database, but they don't make the headlines, but they're there. And you can use uh, statistics, again, some sort of Bayesian methods um, to, to adjust the effect estimate and to shrink it a little bit, to make it a little bit smaller, to account for this overestimation. And the fact that we have this Cochrane database allows us to see what we're missing. And uh, uh, so, I, so, so that's a recommendation that we have in our paper to supplement the usual estimates that we see with a shrunken version that accounts a little bit for the, for the, for the luck factor. You know, I, I, I was going to channel my inner Rosemary and ask a question about headlines, but she beat me to it. So I'll, I'm going to ask sort of a, a, another aspect of what you had responded just before the break was this issue of reproducibility. And th this really kind of s cried out for thinking about, OK, if you know this and you do this shrinkage of the estimate, you could plan a subsequent study now with this revision if that was a target. And, or, or the other question is maybe looking, and I don't know if you've done this, but, but considering within a particular uh, study of a certain drug, mm. if there have been repeated studies, do you see a, trends or tra in, a, in the trajectory of exaggeration ratios? Yeah, so um, yeah, the reproducibility, the, well, first of all, the fact that uh, if your first study is significant, you'll have overestimated the effect. So if you, if you don't account for that, you'll be disappointed in your uh, uh, in your replication study, which doesn't mean that the, the first study was a fluke. It just means that you have to be a little bit more realistic. We actually have a, a follow-up paper with, uh, with, with Steve Goodman, which has just appeared in uh, Statistics in Medicine, if I can plug that, um, where we, we really look at uh, reproducibility in terms of the probability of, again, reaching a significant result if you would replicate the study exactly. And what's the probability that you would uh, at least get the same direction of the effect if you would reproduce this study exactly. And also how much bigger your sample size would have to be to get a certain probability of reaching that significance with your replication study. So we can, we can say a lot more than is just in, uh, in, in this paper. There are this, this Cochrane database is such a wonderful resource that we can study these things. And then we can check them empirically because uh, these papers, so the, the one that's in significance here, and also the, this follow-up paper that I mentioned, just views the Cochrane database as a huge pile of individual studies, of separate studies. 
but they're really meta-analyses. And we can use that structure to say something about, um, if, so if, if I say, well, given that I've seen a significant study, what's the probability that a, a, an exact replication would be significant again? I can use the structure of the Cochrane database to check what, I'm, what, what comes out of the math. So we're also working on that, and um, I can say it works reasonably well. Um, there isn't really there, but but there's not really so much as a trend in uh, in, in these follow-up studies. It only looks like a trend. It only looks like a trend when you first pick a significant study and then go for a follow-up, and then you'll see it go down. But if you you know if you just look at a bunch of studies that have been done in time, there's no reason why there would be a trend in them. Okay, I, so you know we've 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 used this this term and phrase exaggeration ratio. Uh, you know that seems like that's a really important part of the story that you're telling here. Could could you maybe help us unpack the the ingredients of what's part of an exaggeration ratio? So you know people might say, well, if that's big, that means you're exaggerating. So I mean, I think we all could we can we can we're with you there. But let's let's talk about you know. So here you're saying an exaggeration ratio is something larger than one systematically. But what are the ingredients that go into that? Yeah, so if you have an, uh, a clinical trial, you can, if you, if you, you can kind of capture the essence of a clinical trial in just three numbers. There's the effect, the true effect, and then there's the estimated effect, and then there's the standard error of that estimate. So what I call the exaggeration ratio is the, the ratio of the estimated effect to the true effect. So if that's, let's say, 1.2, it means that the true effect of the magnitude of the true effect is overestimated by 20%. Now, of course, I, you know, these, these things are, are random. If I, look, if I just select some sort of a random study from this Cochrane database, then it will have some true effect, it will have some estimate, and both will vary across uh, clinical trials. In the paper, we study what's the distribution of this exaggeration, given that you observe a certain z-score in a particular study. So a z-score is uh, what measures the significance of a study, and a z-score of about two means that the uh, estimated effect is two standard errors from zero, and that would be significant, statistically significant at the 5% level. So given that you've got a study that's just significant with a z-score of, of about two, um, then you would expect, or the, the, uh, you would expect the exaggeration ratio to be about 60%. You would expect that uh, half the studies that are just significant overestimate the true effect by about 60%. Wow. So we talked about, about how reprodu reproducing these studies is not going to necessarily capture the exaggeration. So I wonder if you and your co-authors have thoughts about how do you, how do we work to ensure that these kinds of exaggeration ratios aren't being repeated or reproduced? Like what, what needs to be done? What is the intervention to ensure this doesn't keep happening? Because again, this is about, you're looking at medical research that could be helping people decide what treatments they get, what drugs they get. Yeah, so um, I think that many statisticians uh, will say that these uh, medical researchers should just use larger sample sizes. And, uh, you know, because, you know, we're statisticians and we like uh, good estimates and, um, you know, we, we, we want lots of information and want reliable results. And that means uh, large sample sizes. So this, this is, of course, true, uh, but I don't think that's going to work. 
Because like I said, um, um, the reality is that uh, you, you can't just sort of, you know, open a can of patients. You don't have a lot of money. Um, these drugs are expensive. You don't have a lot of time because maybe a PhD student needs to, uh, needs, needs to finish the paper. So there's always a pressure to have small studies. That's always going to be the case. Now, I think this whole exaggeration is a real problem. Um, and there are two ways to address it. The first way is sort of the, a technical way, which we do in our paper, which is to look at all of the, the Cochrane database and say, okay, well, if this is a typical study, just like a random study from the Cochrane database, then given the results from this study, we expect that, it's over, that the effects are overestimated by whatever, 60% or something, and shrink it back. So that's like a, a technical solution. And a more sort of societal solution is to not focus so much on single studies, but to look more at meta-analyses. Uh, because they have a lot more power, um, because there are multiple studies, which means there are more patients involved, and that, that really reduces this problem of the exaggeration. So if you look at a single study, if you read about a single study, think the effect must be overestimated because I'm reading it, uh, because it stood out. So then you can use our method a little bit to say, well, maybe it should be uh, shrunk back by a factor of two. I think that's, that's a safe thing to do. If you read a paper in, in, a, in a journal, it's significant, just you know, divide the effect by two roughly speaking, uh, why not? But also, if you really want to make decisions um, about patient care, then don't just rely on a single study, rely on meta-analysis. And in practice, of course, this is done in a sense because the, uh, the European Medicines Agency is, and the FDA in the US, um, you know, they require at least two significant studies, so that helps. But meta-analysis is really, is really the way to go to combine information from multiple studies, which as an added bonus, will also say something about how the effect varies in different populations and in different settings, because that's also something that's really, really important. And another part of the Cochrane database that we can study. You know, I, I thought it was really interesting when you were when you were looking at some of the results, particularly of the uh, exaggeration ratio, by thinking about studies that had small standard errors versus larger standard errors, depending on how variable they were. And, you know, that certain patterns where if it was more variable, you'd see more exaggeration, more likely to see this, or higher degrees of exaggeration. But that got me thinking about other contexts. And, you know, I was thinking about, you know, I wonder if, if we were looking at kind of uh, studies, uh, if this is sort of universally true, or as if they're if you were doing a stu study of medical devices, sort of clinical trials for medical devices, if you would see the same magnitude of, of kind of, of exaggeration than you would see in a study of, of some, you know, some uh, cancer treatment. I mean, so I just, I don't know, do you have any sort of intuition or insight about kind of the, whether or not this exaggeration would be expected to be the same across different, different application areas? Yeah, so I, I did a little bit of um, research about that. And um, so this, this whole how large the exaggeration, I mean, there's always going to be exaggeration because just the fact that something is significant means that they got lucky to some degree. This paper says something about clinical trials, all of them. Um, and you can stratify or you can zoom in on certain types of clinical trials, of course, and um, that doesn't make a big difference. So you can, uh, so, so in the Cochrane database, there's different medical specialties like oncology or neurology or psychi psychiatry. Um, it's all pretty similar. Um, however, there are also different phases to clinical research. And a phase two trial is, and phase one trials are sort of you know, trying it out a little bit in small uh, populations. Phase three trials are much more serious. A lot more money is riding on that and, uh, and they really want to, to nail it down. And phase three trials do have uh, much more power and consequently they don't need to 
as much luck to become significant and therefore they're not as exaggerated. So there are differences and it does make a difference, the setting you're, you're, you're thinking about. Now, the Cochrane is, is unique in the sense it's all about medical research. It would be very interesting to know something about sociological research uh, or uh, you know psychological research because of the replication crisis, as they say, um, you know, plays a big role in that area. Um, but they don't have a nice resource like the Cochrane database for, uh, for uh, psychology. And, and just to look at the literature, we know that, um, that not everything makes it into the, um, into the literature. There's a lot of publication bias, the, the file draw effect, where we really only get to see the, the, the wins. And uh, the nice thing about the Cochrane database, even though you know, there will be some selection in it, it's, it's really pretty complete. Um, and, and, and I just don't, I would love to have a resource like that for, for, uh, for psychology, but it's just not there. Registered reports are becoming a thing where, where people just, uh, where, you know, journals will, will, will publish based on the study plan and not so much on the study result. That, that would be a real help because then we'll get a complete record and then we can see how research is done in, uh, in other areas. But yeah, I, I have my suspicions, but I, uh, we, we can't do as, you know, the computations that, that we do for the Cochrane. Well, that's all the time we have for this episode of Stats and Stories. Eric, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah. Uh, well, thanks for talking to me. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter at Stats and Stories, Apple Podcast, or other places where you can find podcasts. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu or check us out at statsandstories.net. And be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.